You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to Genesis uh, chapter 34. Genesis 34, I want to remind you, if you don't have a Bible, there's plenty of these little black ones uh, under the seats in front of you. That's yours to borrow or to keep uh, if you don't have a Bible. Genesis chapter uh, 34, and if you're using these black Bibles, that's page uh, 26. Uh, Genesis 34 is a chapter that uh, if I was writing the Bible, I would not have written it. Um, But God is different than me, thank God for that. Uh, God does not gloss over Uh, the dark moments in life, and he does not gloss over the failures of his people. Uh, He wants us to learn from both the faith and the failures of the saints of old. And we've been seeing encouraging faith from Jacob these past few weeks. Uh, In chapter 32, we read of his uh, dramatic face-to-face encounter with God at Peniel, where he took a massive leap forward spiritually as he learned that the, the key to the life of a believer is prevailing not through strength and power, but prevailing through weakness as one re- learns to rely exclusively on God's grace through faith. And then we saw in chapter 33 a humbled and thankful Jacob seeking forgiveness for his sin against Esau so long ago. Uh, but though he is bent on reconciliation, he declines his brother's offer to dwell with him in the land of Seir because he must go his own way and continue to pursue God's mission for his life. Uh, Jacob was heir to divine covenant promises. He was to play a key role in God's plan to redeem the world, and that plan could only be fulfilled with him returning to the promised land of Canaan after 20 years of exile. And, And oh, if only then we could just read the words, and he lived happily ever after. That would be uh, the perfect ending. But real life isn't perfect. It's messy. Real people are messy. And Genesis 34 is about to plunge us right into that mess. I dare say that most of you have never heard a sermon on Genesis 34 before, and some of you may just kind of breeze over it in your devotional times or just skip it altogether. But I would remind you that Paul writes in Romans 15 that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And in Genesis 34, there is instruction. Believe it or not, there is encouragement, which then leads to hope. So let's get ready to receive that instruction and that encouragement and that hope. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the Word of God. And actually, we're going to back up and we're going to start reading in chapter 33, starting at verse 18, and then we'll read on down through the end of chapter 34. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, "'Get me this girl for my wife.'" 
Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do this thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city." On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. If they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. They said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Father, I come before you this morning as a weak and, and flawed preacher of your word, and I lean on your strength this morning to deal with a very dark, very difficult text. Father, I pray for the congregation this morning that you will help them navigate the text and that you by the Holy Spirit would speak, would instruct, would convict if necessary, and ultimately that you would encourage and point our eyes to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, now you know why many people don't preach on Genesis 34. While um, most people in our country were celebrating Halloween last week, some took October 31st as a time to remember the great reformer Martin Luther, who over uh, a little over 500 years ago set into motion events that would grow into what is today recognized as the Protestant Reformation. And, and a term Luther coined was the phrase simul justus et peccator, which is Latin for simultaneously just and a sinner, or simultaneously righteous and a sinner. And this, this is the tension that every believer lives in. Uh, the Scripture clearly teaches that uh, the believing man and woman is righteous, and yet at the same time before heaven is not perfect, is far from perfect. Initial faith in Jesus begins sanctification. And sanctification is not the immediate, but the gradual elimination of sin from the believer. And sometimes that process of sanctification is hard. Sometimes that process of sanctification is slow. And sometimes for the believer, it's two steps forward and one step back. And sometimes it may be a huge step back. Jacob takes a huge step backwards for sure. And as we examine our text this morning, the first thing I I want us to to see here is a partial obedience, a partial obedience. God commanded Jacob to end his exile and return to the promised land. And so we read in chapter 33, verse 18, that Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. By the way, let me just uh, interject real quick to to avoid any confusion. There's there's Shechem the city, and then there's Shechem the guy. (laughs) And and so it's, it's... you know, helpful to have those two things in mind there. Here, Jacob, in verse 18, comes safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padanaram, and he camped before the city. And we might say, well, that's awesome, right? God commanded him to return, and he has. So what's the problem? Well, let's remember where the finish line for Jacob is. It's not just Canaan in general but a particular place in Canaan. Anyone want to guess what that is? All right, I'll tell you. It's Bethel. Jacob was supposed to return to Bethel. Bethel was where Jacob, on the run from Esau, at the beginning of his exile from home, had an encounter with the Lord, and Jacob made a vow. And he said, if God will provide for me and protect me and bring me safely back then God will be my God. I will return to this place and worship you, and I will give you a tenth 
of everything that you give me. And in chapter 31, when God appears to Jacob again and commands him to return, he says, I am the God of Bethel where you made a vow to me. He reminds Jacob of his vow, and he calls him now to make good on it. And here in chapter 33, verse 18, we see that God has fulfilled his word in bringing Jacob safely back to the land. But Jacob doesn't fulfill his word. Jacob enters into Canaan again, but he stops short of Bethel. Verse 19 says, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. Jacob is done with his travels. He's buying land. He's planning on being there for the long haul. And, and here's the sad thing about it. Bethel is only a day's journey away from Shechem. <laughs> After traveling nearly 500 miles, he is almost there. But he doesn't go all the way. He stops short. He, he fizzles out and gives up just before the finish line. Now, we don't know for sure why Jacob stopped, but we do know that Shechem would have been a very good and very sensible place, economically speaking, in regards to trade and, and the further building of his wealth. Uh, what's more, the fact that he's purchasing land may suggest that perhaps Jacob has grown weary of his wandering pilgrim status. Now, Isaac and Abraham live like temporary sojourners and aliens in the land. And the only thing that Abraham owned in Canaan was a burial plot. Abraham and Isaac were trusting that, that God would provide in his own time and in his own way. In fact, Hebrews 11 tells us that the patriarchs lived with a sense that the land would not even be theirs in their lifetime, and so they looked forward to receiving the fullness of their inheritance in the next life. But Jacob seems to have forgotten that. He's ready to settle down and, and build a comfortable life for himself right now in this life. And, and we can easily see how this could be justified. Listen, Shechem is close enough to Bethel. Uh, this is a good place to settle down with the family. And I am back in Canaan after all. Isn't that the most important thing? Can I not worship God as much here as I can at Bethel? And in fact, if you go down to verse 20, he builds an altar. And he calls it El Elohei Israel, which means God is the God of Israel. Now, of course, Israel, remember, is Jacob's new name. And so here he is declaring that God will be his God. And it appears he's obeying here. He's doing what he vowed to do back in chapter 28. The only problem is that he was supposed to be doing all of this at Bethel. I'm reminded of the book of, of 1 Samuel where Saul had only partially obeyed God, but he kept insisting that he obeyed God, and he tried to make himself look good through religious activity, and Samuel says to him, no, Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. Both Saul and Jacob try to gloss over their sin by covering it up with religious activity, and, and that's something that we're all tempted to do. Uh, tempted to pick and choose which parts of God's word will obey and, and which don't necessarily apply to us. And we would never verbally affirm that such a thing is acceptable, but do our lives reflect that? Are there certain areas where we, on the one hand, appear to be obeying the Lord well? Maybe you're serving in ministry. Maybe you're engaged in personal evangelism. Uh, you're regularly attending church regularly reading the Bible, and yet at the same time you stop short of full obedience as you cherish secret sins that maybe nobody knows about. 
Perhaps you, you justify your impatience or your anger or your lack of forgiveness towards someone because, hey, you may not be all the way to Bethel, but you're close enough, right? You're doing some good things as you declare God to be your God. Brothers and sisters, we should never be content with, with a partial, half-hearted obedience to God, and we should be wary of the imminent dangers that come with living that way. Uh, Ian Duguid writes that almost obedience is never enough. Being in the right ballpark may be sufficient when watching a baseball game, but it is not nearly enough when it comes to obeying God. Nothing short of full obedience is required. And so we should take to heart the counsel that King David gave to his son in 1 Chronicles 28, 9, where he urged Solomon to know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart. This is just not for your sake, but for the sake of those around you. Uh, Again, Duguid writes that Jacob's compromise and his failure to follow through with complete obedience to what he had vowed would cost him and his family dearly. Friends, we never sin in a vacuum. And Jacob and his family are going to learn this the hard way, which leads to the next critical mistake of Jacob, and that is passive parenting. Passive parenting. Let's not forget that the the most dangerous thing about living in Canaan was the Canaanite people. Uh, The degree of wickedness among them was infamous. They were idolatrous, they were violent, they were sexually perverse. Matter of fact, we caught a glimpse of this when we visited the city of Sodom back in chapter 19, and and we saw Lot's flirtation with that, that doomed city. Lot was more interested in building his wealth and living comfortably than he was in the overall mission of God. And we're told in Genesis 14 that Lot pitched his tent near Sodom, and and eventually Lot becomes increasingly entangled with them in business and in trade, and he is even willing to let his daughters marry the wicked men of Sodom. And with that background in mind, we should have alarm bells going off in our heads when we see Jacob pitching his tent near Shechem as he becomes involved in business transactions with them, purchasing land and and settling in to carve out a life in that region, getting closer to the the Hivites there and exposing his family to the Canaanite peoples. While God had called Abraham's family to be separate from the Canaanites, Jacob is becoming increasingly comfortable with them. In verse 1, We're told that Dinah, the daughter of Leah, went out to see the women of the land. There are several red flags here. Dinah is referred to as the daughter of Leah, Jacob's first wife. If you recall, Jacob was tricked by Laban into marrying her. Uh, Her sister Rachel was the girl that Jacob really wanted and loved all along. And because Jacob favored Rachel over Leah, Jacob also favored Rachel's offspring over Leah's. And that that favoritism is going to rip the family apart big time in just a few chapters when we begin to focus on Joseph. By this time in the story, Jacob has been in Shechem for several years, and Dinah is at this point anywhere between 14 and 16 years old. And Dinah went out to see the women of the land. It's very strange because it was highly irregular for young women just to kind of go about freely wherever they wished. What's more, many scholars considering the Hebrew detect a note of disapproval from the narrator in this. And there is the sense that that young Dinah has a a curiosity and, and an attraction to the Canaanites and she goes out to mingle with them. 
Now, again, knowing what we know about the Canaanites, warning bells should be going off in our heads. Commentator Nahum Sarna says, girls of marriageable age would not leave the safety of their home environment into a city without a chaperone or bodyguard. Now, the bigger question to ask in all of this is not what in the world is she doing, but where's Jacob in all of this? Where's Jacob? Where's her father? He's conspicuously absent. I cannot help but wonder if Jacob's own moral compromise, his half-hearted commitment to God, the family's proximity to Shechem, and his lack of interest in his daughter combined to form a toxic blend that stirred up within Dinah a curiosity or attraction to the things of the world. Bruce Walkie writes that Jacob has not himself modeled appropriate distance from the Canaanites, and that may well have influenced Dinah's inappropriate friendliness with them. Now, now as a quick aside, we should see in this a sober warning to parents. It is not uncommon to find that Christian parents who half-heartedly obey the Lord and flirt with worldly compromise suddenly find their children drawn to worldly things as well. While parents can't change the hearts of their children, parents can influence them for good or for ill, and parents can help cultivate in their children good appetites or bad appetites. And so, parents, are there things that you are allowing your children to do or see that are pointing them towards God or away from God? Are you actively and regularly evaluating your children's activities, media consumption, and even their associations? Actively uh, loving and, and, and shepherding your children to help stir up right passions in their hearts. And, and if, if you aren't, if you're absent from their lives, I promise you that something else will fill the void and teach them things that you don't want taught. So moms and dads, spiritually invest in your children and, and watch your own lifestyle, lest you find your children not doing as you say, but instead doing as you do. Jacob is close to the Canaanites, and here it seems Dinah wants to follow suit. But as, as, as unwise as she was to venture into the city, she wasn't looking for trouble. But trouble nevertheless comes looking for her. A.C. Leopold wrote that the Canaanites regarded unmarried women abroad in the land as legitimate prey. And sadly, it's exactly what happens. Dinah goes out to see the women of the land, but she is seen by Shechem, the prince of the land, Verse 2 says, he saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, and he humiliated her. It's a hard story to read. And we must be careful to recognize that, that despite whatever lack of wisdom Dinah exercised in venturing out into the city, the, the assault that happens to her is not her fault. The victim of such a crime ought never to be blamed for the wicked and sinful actions of the perpetrator. And if you're here this morning and you've been victimized in such a way, I hope that you realize that. There is enough pain that you have to deal with. Please don't add to it the false guilt you might be heaping on yourself in the wake of that. And I would urge you, if you haven't already, to, to, to notify the appropriate authorities and, and reach out and make sure you're getting sound biblical help and counsel to help you to grieve and to seek God's help and strength and comfort. Don't walk through that alone. Well, in the wake of Shechem's heinous crime, 
We're told in verse three that his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. He thinks he knows what love is. But people awash in wickedness and sexual perversion don't understand love. Just talk to someone who's addicted to pornography. and You'll know that. Notice with Shechem here, there's no shame. There's no sense of guilt. He never confesses to any wrongdoing. He instead just regards her as something to be possessed. In fact, he says in verse four to his father, get me this girl for my wife. It's a very demeaning way to speak. I want this, so get it for me. Verse five. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Now, now to say that Jacob's response all throughout this chapter, to say that his response is, is, is odd is an understatement. He has just heard that his daughter has been raped. And he holds his peace. As a father, it is hard for me to even comprehend responding in that way. There is no outrage, there is no anger, there is no immediate departure to the city to confront the family, there is no prayer. Now we know that Jacob is capable of emotions regarding his children, at least certain children. Uh, we'll see intense emotion and grief explode later on in connection with his sons Joseph and Benjamin, but of course those children are connected to which of the, jo- which of the wives of Joseph? They're connected to Rachel. But Dinah, as Moses has gone out of his way to highlight at the beginning of the chapter, Dinah is the daughter of Leah. And when it comes to Dinah, we just again see this, this passivity and this, this lack of involvement and this lack of concern. Jacob's passive response is implicitly condemned by Moses because the writer immediately contrasts it with the emotional response of the brothers. Verse seven says that when the sons of Jacob heard about this, the men were indignant. Could also be translated grieved. They were indignant, very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Brothers of Dinah are furious. They are filled with the, with the kind of intense indignation that Jacob should be feeling. And you just have to keep asking, why? What, what, what's going on? Yeah, I know Dinah may not be one of his favorite kids, but still, you, you would think there would be at least some sense of indignation here. Well, I have some thoughts about that. I think there's more going on here, and I'll, I'll revisit Jacob's possible motivations in a minute, but, but let's keep working through the text. After considering Jacob's partial obedience and his passive parenting, Jacob amazingly is now willing to engage in a perilous compromise. A perilous compromise. In verses 8 through 12, Hamor, Shechem's dad, now seeks to enter into negotiation with Jacob. He says, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Now, what is remarkable is that never once in these negotiations is there any admission of guilt. There's no admission of wrongdoing. That's not even acknowledged. What else is not being acknowledged is that all of this time, guess where Dinah is at? Do you know where Dinah is at during the negotiations? You know if, you've been, if you were paying close attention when you were reading it. She's being held captive in Shechem's house. But, but none of this is discussed. This is, this is just a business transaction to them. 
They have a proposal, proposal for Jacob, and the proposal is joining forces and combining Jacob's family with the Hivites. Verse 9, make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, take your daughters for yourselves, take our daughters for yourselves, dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Trade in it, get property in it. You see, while Shechem was lustful, I think, I think Hamor is greedy. And he, and he sees this as a good opportunity. Jacob was massively wealthy. He, he had built a, a fortune. And, and this would be a chance for Hamor to get his hands on some of it. But on a purely economic level, it, it, can, be a, it can be seen as a win-win for both sides. For Jacob, it meant more property, grazing rights, freedom to travel and live everywhere. Really, it's a shortcut to the promised land. And yet, this, above all things is the one thing that Jacob must not do. The economic gain could not compare to the infinite spiritual loss. Again, the family of Abraham, the people of God, were to be distinct from the world morally and spiritually. And the most disastrous thing that could happen would be for them to intermarry and become one with the Canaanites. Earlier in Genesis, we've seen both Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah express very strong feelings about this. This, 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 is, this is not optional here. You don't marry Canaanites. Later on, the original audience of Genesis, Jacob's descendants, the people of Israel, they, they, were, they recognized the dangers here too because as they were about to enter into the promised land themselves, God warned them in Deuteronomy 7, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Man, that's almost like the exact language there in, in, in the negotiations, isn't it? Now, now why, why does God say don't do this? He says, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. God knew that the pagan influence of the Canaanites would be a constant temptation for Israel uh, to take the easy path of compromise. But to go down that road all the way would destroy God's people. And if there is no people of God, if there is no Israel, then there is no hope for blessing for the world. So folks, the, the stakes in these negotiations are as high as possible. You can't get higher stakes than this. And, and, and as Jacob has made this offer, you would then expect him to say, no way. God is more important than economic prosperity and security. You know, in, in the last chapter, he wisely separated himself from Esau. Would he not do the same here? But stunningly, Jacob says nothing. He says nothing. He just sits there. He remains passive. At this point, Jacob's sons take the lead in the negotiations. And when Shechem in verse 12 practically begs for Dinah and offers to give them anything, the brothers see that as their opening. And you've got to think that the brothers have concocted all of this in advance before the negotiations even happen because their response just kind of comes right off the tongue. Verse 13, sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. This, this is all premeditated. Sadly, deceit, trickery, was in the very DNA of Jacob's family. Abraham and Isaac succumbed to this sin. Jacob, we know, 
uh, was the master schemer, and sadly, the apple does not fall far from the tree. Jacob, while Jacob may have left behind his old scheming ways, his sons have already learned well from him, and they are about to pull off a trick that is bigger than anything Jacob has ever done. In verses 14 through 17, they say, we can't join you. You're not circumcised. Now, remember, circumcision among the family of Abraham was a sign of the covenant. It was a sign that through the offspring of Abraham, blessing would come to the world. And this sign marked them out as as being part of God's people. Now, Jacob's sons don't explain all of those details. That's not important in this negotiation. They're simply saying, we're circumcised, you're not. But if you do become circumcised, as we are, then we'll become one people, and guess what? Shechem can have Dinah. Now, what they are planning to do is not only heinous, what they are planning to do is blasphemous. They are using circumcision, a sign given to them by God, and they are blasphemously using it for their own murderous intent. Well, in their ignorance, Hamor and Shechem agree to the terms, and all the while, Jacob, all the while, Jacob's been silent. He's been silent. Where are you, Jacob? You know, I, I was beginning to like Jacob. I was beginning to warm up to him. He was doing pretty good these past couple of chapters, making significant advances. This is a massive step backwards for him. He's not only throwing his daughter Dinah under the bus, but, but even worse, he's ready to throw the entire plan of God under the bus in regards to the nation of Israel uh, and, and, and join in with the Canaanites. The one who has had no regard for the defilement of his daughter also has no regard for the defilement of Israel. Well, in the next few verses, Hamor and Shechem hold a town hall meeting to talk about their proposal with all of the people. Shechem says to the men in verse 23, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? In other words, if we do this deal, what's ours is ours and what's theirs is ours. (laughs) He conveniently left that part out in his negotiation with Jacob. Now, the the text says here that all all the men really, really respect Jacob. Shechem, he's the most honored of all his father's house, and when the most honored person in the family household is the rapist, that doesn't say a lot for the family or for the people. And amazingly, he mentioned circumcision, and you would think that that would be a deal breaker for most people. But they're fine with it. They're fine with it. Because many, many people will do almost anything to make a profit. So they agree to this, and they circumcise themselves. And we're told in verse 25 that on the third day, when they were sore, in other words, when when they were just experiencing the maximum amount of, of pain and discomfort from the circumcision, in that moment, text says that the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, that's important, Those were Dinah's full-blooded brothers. They they also were full-blooded sons of Leah. Uh, These brothers, it says, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all 
the males. Hmm. Now, I mean, when we, we think city, we think Atlanta. Cities were much smaller back then. Uh, you'll think that millions and millions of people were slaughtered. But whether it was dozens or a few hundred, however many, it was one too many. It's a, it's a, it's a slaughter. It's a, it's a bloodbath. Simeon and Levi may have had helpers in this slaughter, maybe, maybe servants, others, but, but they are the ones that are named because they're the ringleaders. And verse 26 says, they killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Nina out of Shechem's house and went away. And then, like sharks that smell blood in the water, we're told that the sons of Jacob, and I take this to mean the other brothers minus Joseph, Joseph was a boy at this time, he was the youngest, uh, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain like vultures plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Folks, this is hard to read as well. This is an all-out massacre. As they mete out death, not just on Shechem, but on everyone. And in this, the sons of Jacob are no better than Shechem, driven by their passionate lust in the moment, a lust for vengeance. They kill all of Shechem's people, all of Shechem's friends for the sin of one man. It's a massive injustice and ironic. Because if the sons of Jacob's standard for justice is the right standard, then they all should be dead. Esau should have slaughtered them all in the last chapter because of the sin of their father, Jacob. And it is only after this that Jacob finally says something. He has been silent the whole chapter. We've been waiting to hear from him, and he's just been totally passive. And so now he finally opens his mouth and gives a pathetic response. A pathetic response. That's my next point. Simeon and Levi are standing there before Jacob, blood dripping from their swords, smeared all over their clothes. And finally, Jacob speaks. He says in verse 30, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. What word comes up over and over again? How many times do you count the first person uh, pronoun in Jacob's little speech? I count eight. Jacob makes everything, everything about him. You would think that when your sons return from murdering and looting an entire town covered in blood and with refugee women and children walking into your camp that you now would be responsible for, you would think that Jacob would be deeply grieved over the sin and the pain and the injustice of it all. But instead he makes it all about his position and his safety and his security, because he's afraid. He's afraid. 
And that, brothers and sisters, has been Jacob's problem ever since he arrived at Shechem. And it's why he has been so silent and so passive. He is concerned about his own position in the land, his own comfortable life there, his own reputation, his own self-preservation, concerned about his good relations with his powerful neighbors. All chapter long, it's as if Jacob has, has felt trapped and paralyzed, and now we know why. The fear of man lays a snare, Proverbs 29, 25 says but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Jacob's fear has rendered him spiritually and morally impotent. He does not trust, he does not fear the Lord, and so, therefore, he is controlled by the fear of all of these other things. And what makes all of this even more sad is when you consider the very purpose of the covenant represented by circumcision, Uh, the, the purpose that Jacob would be the head of a people that would bring blessing to the nations. The folks, the reason why they were to be separate from the other people was not for arrogant aloofness, but so that they might stand out as a beacon to the world so that the nations might come to know God. And, and, and as Jacob and his bloody sons are standing there with the smoke from the raped city of Shechem, rising in the background, I'm thinking so much for a blessing. You guys have brought about a curse on these people and you use the sign of the blessing to do it. How twisted is that? What a complete, utter, and disastrous failure are all of them. And in the meanwhile, there is a, a young hurting girl that has not been truly helped. And while there's enough blame to go around, I lay the bulk of it at the feet of Jacob. How much of this could have been avoided had he but obeyed the Lord fully in the first place and kept his eyes on the mission? He fell, and his whole family falls with him. Christian fathers, be warned. Your sin is never just your sin. When you sin, you set off a grenade that sends shrapnel flying everywhere. And and guess who suffers the most collateral damage? Those who are closest to you. So don't, don't look at Genesis 34 and say, I just can't believe Jacob would do something like that. I would never do that. Instead, you and I should look at this chapter and tremble and say along with the 19th century Scottish minister McShane that the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. And then in response, we should pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Folks, we are made of the same stuff as Jacob. And if you and I take our eyes off the ball and think that we can just spiritually coast and be spiritually passive and not vigorously pursue the Lord... If we think we can get away with half-hearted, partial obedience and flirt with worldly compromise, then we should not be surprised if one day we find ourselves experiencing a fall every bit as severe as Jacob's. Do not think you're above it. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. But what, what, if, you, what if you already have fallen? like Jacob. 
And you're here this morning realizing that like Jacob, you have lost your way. You have lost your focus on the mission of God. You have not loved as you should have loved. You've not led your family as you should have led. Or, or you've simply not been about the business of wholeheartedly pursuing the Lord. And you and perhaps others are suffering the painful consequences of the foolish choices that you have made. What does that mean for you now? Well, I think we discovered the answer by considering God's response to all of this. God's been absent from this chapter, which is, which is poetic, because this chapter is a sobering example of what happens when everyone disregards God. If God has been silent, or if Jacob has been silent, God more so. But now, as we move into chapter 35, he speaks, and there we see a precious grace, a precious grace. I, I did not read verse 1, chapter 35 in our scripture reading because that would have been a spoiler. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. After Jacob had spent years in partial obedience, failing his sons, failing his daughter, failing God, God finally intervenes and tells him to pick up, leave, and get back to the business of fully walking with and obeying me. You're not done, Jacob, and I'm not done with you. Brothers and sisters, that is precious grace. Because I'll be honest, if I was God, I would be totally done with Jacob after this. Totally done. But friends, God is, is much better than Deemer Webb. Thank God. God still loves Jacob. And Christian brother and sister, God still loves you. And the scriptures are showing us that God never gives up on his people. Our foolishness can never thwart and overcome his good plans. While Jacob had failed to keep his vow, God will not fail to keep his. He told Jacob in chapter 28, I will not leave you, and God won't. Much later in history, Jacob's descendants likewise consistently failed to follow God, and yet God said to them in Malachi chapter 3, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, though God's people are fickle, God is faithful. God keeps his promises. God is ever, ever faithful. And, and, and the next verse in Malachi, God says to them, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And so in chapter 35, verse 1, we find God not condemning Jacob or smashing him into the earth. Uh, God does not change, and therefore Jacob is not consumed. No, he should be. Instead, in, in the wake of Jacob's fall, God simply tells him to get back up and to listen to God again. Uh, move forward in obedience to him. You cannot reverse past disobedience, but you can in the present repent and reverse course and do what is good and right. And if you do, you can count on the Lord to support you and to help you in that as he does with Jacob. But there's more. <clears throat> as we begin to limp with Jacob back to Bethel, the question of Jacob's sons at the end of chapter 34 haunt us. They asked Jacob, should he treat our daughter like a prostitute? Uh, in other words, should sin be gotten away with? Should, should there not be justice? 
That's a really good question. And neither Jacob nor his sons could properly answer it. Jacob downplayed the need for justice, and Jacob's sons confused justice with excessive bloodthirsty vengeance. Well, it is also at Bethel that the question of his sons will be answered because when Jacob finally gets there, he's going to build an altar, and on that altar, he's going to place an animal, and he's going to slit its throat. And as blood runs down that altar, it communicates a powerful message that, yes, God is a God of justice, and the wages of sin is death, and vengeance belongs to God. And all who sin deserve to be like that animal, life ebbing away, choking on its own blood. In other words, it's not just people like Shechem who deserve that, but everyone, including the worshiper. And the sacrifice is a vivid reminder that God did not agree with Jacob's indifference to the evil of Shechem. God is a God of justice, which is why God appointed governing authorities to bear the sword against evildoers and why ultimately God himself promises to bring the sword of his holy wrath upon sinners. On the other hand, that dying animal does not just speak of justice, but it speaks of grace and mercy. Because it is not the worshiper that is dying at the altar. It is the animal. Blood must be shed for sin, but for the one who repents and seeks the mercy of God, that blood does not have to be his own, but it will be the blood of a substitute. And that would be a vivid reminder to Jacob's sons that not only is there justice, and that that, and that that justice must be proportionate and fair, but even more, that there is grace for the humble sinner. And those animal sacrifices are ultimately just reminders. Uh, they're not the final solution. They're but symbols. They're symbols pointing to the one who would bring justice and save. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world by dying as a substitute for sinners like us. His blood was shed on the cross. He received the fullness of justice for every sin committed by his people. The cross shows that God takes sin very seriously, which was the concern of the sons of Jacob. Indeed, the cross shows that he takes it more seriously than anybody else does. But at the cross, we don't see sinners dying for the sins of their friend like what happened at Shechem. We instead see one perfect man dying for the sins of all of his friends so that all who repent and seek mercy will find it. But those who reject Jesus as their sin-bearing substitute will ultimately receive the justice of God directly themselves. That same Lamb of God who died also was raised, and Revelation chapter 14 says that the sinner will be eternally tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the Lamb. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And if it is His, then we don't have to exact it ourselves. We can trust the Lord to do it. And in this way, all sin, all sin will be dealt with more perfectly than Jacob's way or his son's way. All sin will be rightly accounted for. Either the sin is borne by Jesus on the cross or it will be borne by the sinner forever in hell. Either way, justice is done. 
Either way, no sin goes unpunished, which not only speaks a word to people like Jacob and his sons, but also speaks a word to people like Dinah, who find themselves unjustly treated and sinned against. Jesus knows the pain of the one who has unjustly suffered because he himself has suffered unjustly. And in him and through him, all sin, one way or another, will be dealt with. Sins that you have done and sins that have been done against you. For the unrepentant, the end game is hell. For the humbly repentant, well, we can rejoice that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He gets the penalty of our sin. We get the, penalty, uh, the benefit of his righteousness. And therefore, in Christ, we can be simul justus et peccator, righteous yet a sinner, which is why even after the fall, even after a big fall, the Christian need not be fearfully anxious that God will condemn him, but he can, like Jacob, get back up and press on in his pilgrimage. It does not mean that there will never be temporal consequences for the sins of a believer. Jacob is, will experience this for sure. But, but even in those things, God continues to work in his life. And regardless of any temporal consequences, the shed blood of the sacrificial lamb at Bethel will remind him that he will never experience the eternal consequences. Why? Because those consequences have been borne by another. And that is the hope for all of God's people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your help in navigating us through a very difficult text. And thank you for the reminder that God is a God of justice, of terrible vengeance that will be measured out on all sin But you are a perfect judge who dispenses justice rightly, righteously, fairly. And Father, thank you also for the reminder that the God of justice is also the God of grace and mercy. And that destruction is not the end of the story for all who would humbly repent and seek your favor. Justice and mercy come together at the cross. Justice for our sin, and then mercy flowing from you to us. We thank you that for your people, though our sins be many, your grace is more. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.